Investors are piling into cash, sort of, but is the money market the right solution for most investors? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of April 10th, 2023, and I'm back after some vacation time. So today, Julia Herman and I are going to be talking about all things cash. Now, because we are an investments-focused team, you might be asking yourself, why would we talk about cash? But lately, there's been a big movement towards the money market, which is highly liquid near-term instruments and money market mutual funds that invest in those types of instruments. These securities or funds are so liquid that they're considered a cash-like security. Exactly. So when an investor says, I'm going to cash, they usually mean the money market because the money market allows you to get some yield while maintaining a lot of liquidity. And when interest rates are rising, as they have been for the past year, the yield you're getting in the money market has risen. And so too has its popularity. We're going to come back to that point on yields, but it's important to say that lately big flows in the direction of the money market have contributed to you got it, market volatility, especially in rates. And they give us some clues about what investors are thinking. That's right. We're seeing that a big knock-on effect of the banking sector tumult, which we've covered extensively in our podcast over the past few weeks, is that there's been a tsunami of inflows into money market funds. About $300 billion has flowed into the money market in the past few weeks. Can you dig into that just a bit deeper? How does activity in the banking sector impact investors' views towards cash? That's an awesome question, and it's two sides of the same coin. So first, we saw that there was a temporary confidence issue in which some people felt that they needed to relocate their deposits out of small banks and into, as it turned out, the, the money market. There were a lot of money market funds offered by larger banks that benefited from that. Then the other side of that coin, the other side of the I'm worried about the banking sector coin, is the fact that bank fragility has contributed to now pretty widespread expectations for a recession this year. So a flight to safety is a big part of this. Now, that phrase that you used, flight to safety, when someone says something like that, we're referring to the phenomenon where investors see times of stress or fear. And so they move into assets that are at least perceived to be safer. Treasuries are the ultimate version of this because they don't have credit risk given the guarantees of the U.S. government. So overall, the money market is often treated as a safe but liquid way to park cash while getting some yield. That's right. And another factor influencing this wholesale shift from bank deposits and into money market funds to different versions or options for cash or cash-like instruments is the fact that bank deposit rates haven't risen the way that interest rates in the general economy have risen. Yeah, banks haven't really felt the need to compete here on deposit rates. 
That's exactly right. So due to stimulus payments and hoarded savings during the pandemic, banks had tons of deposits on hand. That's where you put your extra cash. And frankly, banks didn't have very much to do with those deposits. So the supply of deposits was higher than demand for loans or what banks would do with those deposits, especially in 2020 and 2021, when parts of the economy were still on and off, depending on what was happening with the pandemic. So as events in the banking sector here in the past few weeks have unfolded, many investors have said, wait a minute, I knew that I wasn't getting a ton of money on my bank deposit rate, but now given everything that's going on with banks, it really does make sense to get a higher yield for my cash somewhere else. So if you combine the flight to safety argument with the opportunity for higher yield argument, you can see why flows specifically to the money market have been so dramatic. That's right. And and we'll discuss later why some allocation to cash or cash-like securities can make sense for investors. But there are a lot of options out there that may have more potential to preserve purchasing power when inflation is high. So we have these inflows in the money market, and we've seen a pretty dramatic rise in rates volatility in the last few weeks. Julia, why don't you help us pivot then to that rates volatility aspect of the story? Sure. We've seen a lot of volatility across the yield curve, but it's mostly concentrated in the short end of the treasury curve, which includes the money market right there. So we're talking about the money market, which is usually uh, encompassing treasury bills of one year or less. So one way to measure this volatility is the MOVE index, which is provided by ICE and B of A, and it measures the volatility of one month treasury options. The only times that this MOVE index has signaled more volatility in the past 15 years have been the height of the COVID shock and the global financial crisis. Think about that. That's an incredible amount of volatility. And it's mainly been in one direction. Yields have moved lower and therefore bond prices have moved higher. Inflows into treasuries due to the banking crisis make sense here. There's more demand for these instruments and therefore investors are willing to accept less compensation or less yield for holding them. There's also a link here to those expectations for recession that we mentioned. Last week, we got several points of data that point to slightly softer economic growth and would support the recession argument. So unemployment claims were slightly higher than expected, and also OPEC announced oil production cuts. And if you sort of reverse or or talk about the other side of that logic, investors in the general public are concerned about slowing growth or even recession. And that contributes to a desire to cut oil supply so that prices can stay buoyant, or in this case, slightly higher. Yeah, that's that's definitely the logic flow. So then these expectations for recession also pressure yields downward. There's the flight to safety argument. And there's also the idea that in a recession, inflation should come down. So then the Fed might be able to ease policy rates. Okay, so there's downward pressure on Treasury yields from a wide variety of angles here, but they all boil down to expectations for recession, whether that's specifically spurred by banking issues or is just the inevitable conclusion of this cycle. So as a result of that increasing risk of recession in investors' eyes, investors are looking to Treasuries as a source of safety amid so much uncertainty. Gold star summary. So then why did I come back from vacation and hear about the end of the dollar? Is that is that related to this conversation at all? Why has there been this chatter about the de-dollarization of the world? Well, so I was not on vacation and I still had to ask myself that question about why this huge narrative started coming up about the dollar. And I think there's two causes. The first is that the dollar has seen some weakness in the past few weeks. Because the market had started pricing in Fed cuts for later this year and next year, which tends to lead to currency depreciation, all else equal. 
Exactly. So we saw those expectations for recession feeding through into expectations for cuts, feeding through into a weaker dollar. But this is relative. Overall, the trade-weighted dollars level is still quite strong versus historical levels. So we need to put that in context here. So a second potential cause for why we've seen this newfound de-dollarization narrative is the, the landmark detente that China brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran. These are two countries that severed diplomatic ties in 2016. So this is a huge deal. And it's also a huge deal from the U.S. perspective because so much of the Middle East alliance structure and U.S. influence within it relies around close U.S. ties to Saudi Arabia and Israel, which are a counterweight for both countries against Iran. But now we've seen China having very productive talks with the whole Gulf area about potentially pricing some oil contracts in renminbi. And now China's brokering this warming up tensions with Saudi and Iran. It represents a new power dynamic, or at least it could. Yeah, it could. And the reason that this then relates back into a dollar narrative is not because there's an imminent expectation that Saudi Arabia is going to break its currency peg to the dollar and start pricing everything oil related in renminbi. It's not about that. Rather, we think that this is more about a signal. Is the U.S. losing influence in the region? And what does that mean for the dollar moving forward? Got it. And so this is more of a risk factor than anything, but investors are asking about it, and that makes sense. Let's reiterate our view that we don't see a danger of the U.S. losing its reserve currency status even over the long term, 20 or 50 years. There's lots of different changes in the global currency dynamic, but currently no alternative currency that's trusted to hold its value and would also be transactable worldwide. There's certainly a push to diversify major transaction currencies, and there's been some diversification of global reserves that reflects this. But we really think that fears of the end of the dollar could be overblown. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And since we spent so much time today sharing the reasons why investor appetite for cash is so high right now, in this section, we thought it'd be helpful to share instances where cash may not actually be the best choice and provide some other options for diversification in the fixed income sleeve of a portfolio. Let's first talk about inflation. We've said for quite a while now that with inflation running so hot, many assets that would be perceived as safe, in air quotes, are not protecting purchasing power. And even though most money market funds are delivering a yield of around 3 to 5%, they're not exceeding the rate of inflation. So some allocation of the money market may make sense for tactical investors or those with higher cash needs, for example, those in retirement. But for many other investors, there are lots of compelling diversification options out there within fixed income. So here we want to highlight that not all yield curves are created equal. For example, the treasury curve is meaningfully inverted, so you're getting a higher yield for shorter dated instruments than you are for long dated instruments right now. That means it makes very little sense to invest far out along that yield curve, adding interest rate risk to your portfolio while also sacrificing interest rate yield. For investors, though, who are interested in adding that interest rate exposure or duration, a more traditionally shaped curve rewarding longer tenor investments with higher yields can be found in other places, like in the municipal bond curve, for example. So then pairing shorter duration exposures, such as to the money market, short duration high yield, or even floating rate loans can be paired with select exposure to longer duration bonds, such as those municipal bonds that Lauren mentioned. That might help some investors achieve the right mix of yield and price appreciation, and that mix will depend on each investor. 
What Julia is describing is called a barbell strategy, and it's a great example of ways that investors can be a little bit more creative and think about the complex and overall structure of their portfolio to get the types of exposures that they need. This is something to talk to a financial professional about. Investors who are particularly concerned, though, about the current environment, who really like that retrenchment idea or cash idea, or just are generally conservative in their investment allocation, could consider stable value funds as well. A stable value fund is a fund that invests in high quality government and corporate bonds with the difference from other funds in that they are insured. An insurance company or bank is contractually obligated to protect the fund's investors from any form of loss in capital or interest. With that, Julia, thank you so much for this warm welcome back and a great chat today. Always glad to be here. Coming up next, it's all eyes on the March inflation data coming out later this week on Wednesday morning. The market's gotten on board with a recession narrative, but could inflation continue to disrupt hopes for policy easing? That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.